0: It's really good to be back. We just wanted to say firstly, thank you so much to everyone for all your support in our previous episode where we talked about one of the hardest things we've had to go through in life, but we were overwhelmed with the support we received. So thank you for that. But today we're back with something different but important and we're going to be talking about money. Now, disclaimer, we aren't experts on this topic, but as we've grown up, got jobs and become responsible for our own finances, we've learned a lot of things along the way, which we would love to share with you. Money is essential to live in our world and knowing how to manage finances from a young age will make our lives a lot easier.
1: So money, 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 as Mr. Krabs would say from uh, SpongeBob SquarePants. Anyway, in the church, there are many views on money, but there are two major views uh that are held by quite a few people, and they're in opposition to each other. One view is that money is a representation of God's blessing in your life. If you check your bank account and it looks good, then praise God, God is good. There are many denominations, and these denominations are huge, and many groups of people in the quote-unquote church that believe this and preach this shamelessly. Uh, We have discussed this previously on Season 1, Episode 7, titled The Prosperity Gospel, where I spoke with guest speaker Praveen Matthews about this. Of course, uh, there is another view, and this is the opposite view, and this view states that money is evil, and that if you have any money with you, you should give it away to the people who need it. If you enjoy any of the money you have and didn't give it away, you are sinning, and this can be called the poverty gospel. Basically, the idea is that you need to be living minimalistically as much as possible and the story used to propagate this view is the conversation between the rich young ruler and jesus in luke 18 and in this conversation the rich young ruler approaches jesus and says what do i need to do to inherit the kingdom of god and jesus says you have to follow the commandments and the rich young ruler says well i've followed them all from the time i was a young man and jesus says well that's great but you lack one thing and it says The one thing you have to do is give up the wealth that you have and follow Jesus. And this rich young man felt upset and left the presence of Jesus.
0: So Luke chapter 18 verse 24 to 25 says that Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. So what's Jesus actually trying to say here? Is he saying that having money is a sin and that automatically cuts you out of God's kingdom? I mean, of course not, right? Jesus was commenting on the fact that this rich young ruler was unwilling to follow Jesus's call for him to sell all that he had, to give the money to the poor and to follow Jesus. So this young ruler here loved money more than he loved Jesus. In his heart, Even though he had kept all the Jewish laws, Jesus saw that he treasured his wealth above all else. And that's why when Jesus called him, instead of being over the moon, he was very sad because he was very wealthy. That's literally what it says. So money isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. But it becomes a bad thing when we make it a God thing. So if money is our God and we live to serve it and to make more of it and to enjoy it, uh, we are basically worshipping an idol. And because the only one who deserves to be treasured, served and enjoyed like that is God himself.
1: Right, and Jesus continues on this theme uh, in Luke chapter 16 where Jesus talks about the parable of the dishonest manager. Uh, some translations call it the shrewd manager, and I and I think that word shrewd seems to be complimenting the manager, but it talks about dishonesty and doing wrong with other people's money. The manager has been dishonest with his master's money in this in this parable. And eventually it catches up to him and he's facing the sack. And at that time, instead of making amends, this manager commits fraud and becomes even more dishonest. And Jesus in the story is not telling us to become like this manager, but saying that there are people in this world who are dishonest. And then Jesus challenges us in verse 10 onwards by saying, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money." So the reason why this manager wanted to be dishonest with his money is because he loved money over God. He loved money over honesty. He loved money over everything else. And when I said his money, I meant his master's money. And for the Christian, it must not be so. Paul in his first letter to Timothy chapter 6 verses 10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith And pierce themselves with many griefs. So the problem isn't with money, but the greed and appetite for it.
0: Yeah, and building on this theme of management, the foundational principle that must guide Christians on how to use money is the principle of stewardship that the money doesn't actually belong to us, but to God. He's just lent it to us, and we are just here to manage it. Because we come with nothing, and we take nothing with us when we leave. So in the next part of the episode, we'd like to talk a little bit about the do's and don'ts of managing money. We'd like to start with teenagers who have per- perhaps got their first part time job because we have a few listeners at that age group.
1: Yeah. And uh, a mother of uh, teenagers who's been watching or rather listening to our show has said they often leave it on in the night when they go to sleep and you can still hear, hear our voices in the night. I, I guess some people can at least fall asleep listening to <laughs> us. Uh, Must be that exciting. Anyway, uh, so I got my job as a teenager, as a 14-year-old, as a paperboy. And I had to work on Thursdays and Friday evenings after school. It started off enjoyable, but as most jobs do, it got a bit loathsome. And the £30 per week for the job helped ease the pain though.
0: £30 a week. That is actually a lot of money for a kid. You know, you were minted back then, I have to say. And that's the thing. When you're young and you start earning money, it gets really exciting because it's like your first taste of freedom. Because let's be real, nobody really likes asking their parents for money. Uh, some people
1: do. I think our younger siblings probably uh, <laughs> feel like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, personally, I didn't. Because if you had parents like mine, they wanted to know exactly like what I did with my money, you know, etc. And that was really annoying. But when you get your own job, you get your own money and nobody can tell you what, with, what to do with it. Right? <laughs> I mean, wrong. If you're a brown kid, you'll know that as long as you're under your mom and dad's roof, you'll do as they say. And... I know it's annoying, but there's actually a bit of wisdom in that. When you're that young and you have that money, and by having the money, you basically have some power as well, it is important to have someone older and wiser to guide you on how to spend and save that money. It might seem annoying then, but trust me, it will pay off later because you'll start building healthy spending habits from a young age and you'll be able to budget and save and spend properly. Because if left uncontrolled, it can actually lead to disaster. So if you're in that situation right now and you're listening to us, ask your parents or a mentor for counsel on how to spend your money. Obviously, you know, I'm not saying all parents are great with money. But if you do, you know, feel like your parents are good with how they manage their money, do ask them or ask a mentor. And, you know, don't have the attitude that now that you have your own money, you're just, you know, your own boss and no one can tell you what to do. Uh, Yeah, and on the point of...
1: Working as a teenager, I think it's a good thing to work at a young age because it teaches you so much more about life and the importance of work Importance of being punctual being reliable and on top of all of that It gets you out of the addictive habit of living purely on the handouts from your parents Because when you have your own money on the line, everyone has a different attitude towards it Most people become fiscally conservative when they have to spend their own money And they're fiscally liberal when they have to spend their parents' money because it's very easy to spend and be generous with other people's money. When it's your own money on the line, people tend not to be generous.
0: Yeah, and when you start earning, that's a really good time to start practicing generosity. Because now that you have your own money, you know, you can maybe stop taking your parents' money for church offerings. You can even tithe monthly, even though it may be a very small amount. Because starting this young will mean that you'll keep doing this when you're older. Being generous with your charitable giving and even buying gifts for your family is a really nice thing to do. Now, I might be tooting my own trumpet here, but when I got my first part-time job when I was at uni and my salary came through for the first time, I was so gassed and I felt like I was really rich, even though, you know, I was in student loan debt. (laughs) But um, I bought gifts for my mum and dad, my brother and not cheap gifts either, by the way. And to this day, I keep reminding my brother because he's on his third job and I'm yet to receive a thoughtful gift. But, you know,
1: that's neither here nor there. Well, to be fair, he did give us a generous housewarming gift.
0: Yeah, OK. But, um, you know, the point is that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And the more we give, the more cheer increases as well.
1: Right. And on this topic about giving, uh, I'd like to read a an excerpt from uh, Shepard's Church where they talk about tithing in the new testament church there's three pieces of information they share and i'm going to read a bit on it the first thing is about giving generously and the reason why we give generously is because paul encouraged the church in the city of corinth he shared how generous the macedonian churches were at giving he says For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. That's from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verses 3. He then follows up his encouragements by saying whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So instead of prescribing a certain amount or percentage, the New Testament churches were simply encouraged to give generously. The next thing is about giving consistently. So, in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, he writes, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. So, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 2. So, there, the church were encouraged to set aside an amount of money to give each week. So, it wasn't like a new rule, but again, a general principle to encourage consistent giving. And finally, it's about giving joyfully. If God desires a person's heart, then the heart with each person gives matters. Paul again writes, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 2nd Corinthians chapter 9 verses 7. So those are the three things we need to consider when we're giving, that we give generously, we give consistently and we give joyfully.
0: Yeah, those are some really good principles from the shepherd's church, you know, and that's not just for teenagers who get their first job, but also for adults who found their proper jobs and are in the process of settling down. This becomes an even more important thing as our incomes increase. Uh, As a young man or woman who's settling down, there's always this pressure to do the next thing. Once you find a job, get married. Once you get married, buy a house. Once you buy a house, refurbish it. Once you refurbish it, extend it. Once you extend it, get the garden landscape. You know, the list can be endless. There's always more you can spend on. But the question is, do you need to spend it at that moment in time? We're not saying it's a sin to refurbish and extend your house, but the question is, why are you doing it? Is it to impress others or because there's a genuine need to do it? Um, When we got our house, uh, a few people came to visit and some of them had a lot of ideas on what we should do to make our house even better. But, you know, for us, the house was in a livable condition and we didn't really feel the need to fall under that pressure. So we just smiled and nodded when they were giving us suggestions. But as a family, privately, we decided that we didn't need to do that at
1: that time. I mean, it was a bit more than just livable.
0: Yeah, no, no, it was, it, <laughs> it was in like pristine condition. Basically.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that people have got to realise is that for most people, when they've just brought their house, their bank account will be close to empty as they've just spent their money on the deposit, on the legal fees and therefore doing anything more or anything large uh, works related ...on their house will be something that would inevitably lead to the use of loans. And this brings us to our next point. Uh, in our Asian culture, perhaps specifically Malayali culture... ...but let's keep in general for now and say Asian... Uh, ...there seems to be some form of addiction or uh, honour... ...there seems to be an honour given to taking loans out. Uh, you know, there seems to be some form of honour in being indebted to the bank... ...either through credit cards, overdrafts or loans... And I think it's mind-boggling for people who are so highly educated to have a blind spot on this issue. Okay, so let's break it down. Banks are in the business of making money and they will do anything in their power to make you want to take a loan out and they will do this by lending you huge amounts with very little interest. And I know couples who have spent thousands of pounds on things that they couldn't afford and have to literally spend every living moment of their life trying to pay it back. Uh, it could be refurbishments we've spoken about. It could be a weddings. And now I'm not against affluent weddings, if you can afford it. But going into debt over a one-time event is a huge mistake, which you'll spend a long time literally paying for. I remember seeing a bridal entrance once where the bride came out of a helicopter and then was walked into <laughs> the, uh, the the hotel, into the, in the area. And I thought to myself, I am not going to see a more expensive and lavish bridal entrance than that. So it it would seem pointless to either try and recreate that in our wedding, because one, we can't afford it. And two, most importantly, is it necessary? And the answer is no. So you're definitely sure you
0: weren't disappointed when I just came walking on my two feet (laughs) at our wedding? No,
1: no, no. All right, well, just (laughs) checking. Okay. Okay,
0: so I wanted to read this little um, part from um, a book written by John Piper, all about marriage. I think it's called Preparing for Marriage, and this is something that we read before we got married. Um, So John Piper here is talking about his wedding. Uh, When Noelle and I were married, she wore her mother's wedding dress, free. No, she had a few alterations to make, probably a few dollars. I wore my best and only Sunday suit. My best man did the same. Her matron of honor wore a nice Sunday dress. We had an open Bible and a cross on the platform just to show what our values were. The church organ was played. My father preached. The church provided a reception which was in the fellowship hall. No meal, no refreshments. There was a cake. I borrowed my father's car to go on a honeymoon. A seven-hour drive to St. Petersburg, Florida, where we stayed in a single-story motel on the beach. It was all simple. It was all full of joy. It was explosive with happy expectation. Nobody borrowed any money. The Lord, the word, the vows, the lovers were the foreground, and God was honoured. And we are just as married 47 years later as anybody. And, you know, we're not saying that you just need to have the same things as what John Piper is saying here, but I think the point he's making is quite good that you. Even if you don't have this grand wedding, you know, this Instagram, Pinterest kind of wedding, you will still be married, (laughs) you know. And the main thing is not the wedding day, but your marriage. Uh, And that is a process. But we're not talking about a marriage episode here. So,
1: yeah, I mean, it's interesting you read that now because I'm just suddenly remembered of people that I know who who've had more than like a thousand people at their wedding. Lavish, lavish weddings. And then two, three years later, they split up. Yeah. And then they have another wedding, again, equally as lavish. But, and I'm thinking to myself, well, what was the point? Yeah, All that money down the drain for something that didn't last for that long. So it's quite important that when you come together for these kind of decisions, especially cost of the wedding, you both see eye to eye on it and realize what's important and what's not. And staying on this idea of spending and particularly overspending, and the reason I learnt about this lesson about overspending and the, uh, and the idiocy behind it was uh, before I got married, there was a time when I really wanted a nice German car. And I had the pleasure of buying a BMW 3 Series M Sport. But the thing was, I couldn't afford to buy it. And so took a loan out. And it was a foolish thing to do. And I'll tell you why it was a foolish thing to do. Your car is the worst asset on average you can ever have. Because if you tell me you have an object that you've bought that continuously depreciates in value, which costs money, requires an annual tax, which costs money, needs to be tested annually, which costs money, needs fuel to run, which costs money. If there is something wrong with that object, it'll cost you a lot of money. If you need to use that object, you need insurance, which costs money. And you use this object maybe one to two hours a day, right? And this object can't enter areas freely sometimes you need to spend money for you to take it to certain areas and on top of that you are going to be paying monthly payments at interest to keep this object in front of your house i would say that it will be a poor investment taking out a loan for a car is a foolish thing to do if you can't afford the car then getting a cheaper car is the best option and this is again a message that is more relevant to our older listeners but i think it is something that our young listeners ...would need to consider when making these huge purchases. And let me tell you something... ...one of the most satisfying moments of owning that BMW... ...was when I paid off that loan completely... ...by overpaying my loan. We often make our lives... ...much more difficult than it needs to be... ...by our choices. Now, putting all that aside... ...if you can afford to have a lavish wedding... ...and a lavish car... ...without taking a loan... ...that doesn't really affect your net worth... ...then go for it... ...and enjoy it. But honestly... That isn't the case for everyone.
0: Yeah, and this may not be possible for everyone. There may be exceptional situations, but as much as we can, we're of the opinion that the only loans we should have are our student loan and mortgage. Now, the student loan in the UK is weird. It's like... I don't know, would you
1: describe it as a tax? A Gra- graduate tax or something like, like that. Yeah,
0: because yeah. it gets written off after 30 years. So trying to pay more of it is a bit pointless. So just pay what you need to for the 30 years, depending on your income. And I don't think we have a say in this. You know, when we start getting a certain salary, um, it gets taken out of our paycheck before we even see it. So that's that. And uh, the mortgage, people have done this before, but we don't expect that the majority of people will be able to save up so much that they will have cash in hand to pay for a house. Um, It's a huge investment and with the way the property market is going, it's almost impossible for like an average Brit to buy a house without some sort of a loan. So as much as possible, from our experience, student loan and mortgage are the only loans we think are actually worth having. Um, Again, if there's an emergency and you need a large amount of money quickly that you haven't got, that's a different situation. But if it's an avoidable loan, it's best to avoid it and save up for whatever investment you want to make. Uh, Because in Proverbs 22 verse 7, it says that the borrower is a slave to the lender. So when we're in debt, we're actually slaves to our banks. And like you said, in our culture, people don't think this way, but it's true. So our aim should be to do as little of this as possible. So yeah, so loans and investments, these are all really big decisions. And this is why in marriage, it's really important to be on the same page as your spouse when it comes to finances. Because I always find it shocking when I hear the stats that money is one of the biggest reasons for divorce. If one spouse is an extravagant spender, that could bring the whole family down. And this is one of those topics that people don't really discuss before they get married. And they're in for a surprise when they find out about their husband or wife's spending habits. But anyway, in Christian marriage, there is no your money and my money. We don't have a tradition of signing prenuptial (laughs) contracts because A, we don't believe in divorce. Now, there are cases where if people are in danger, they need to be removed from that situation. But we're talking about the average marriage here. So we don't believe in divorce for the average marriage. And B, because we don't believe in divorce. We don't even foresee a situation where we will have to separate and take our respective money with us. So whatever I make is his, whatever he makes is mine. It's our money. And with that attitude of being a team, it really helps us manage our money well. When I feel like overspending on something ridiculous, he doesn't have to remind me. But I think, hang on a second, this is our money and we are to use it wisely. So I probably shouldn't get that. And he does the same as well. And another thing is that we always discuss with each other before we make any big financial investments. Now, big will look different for different people. But if it's anything over about, I don't know, 50 pounds, I like to run it by him. And some people will be rolling their eyes and gagging at this and being like, what century are you from? But, you know, we don't do this because we are scared of each other, but um, purely because we value each other's counsel. So if I have the go ahead from him, I can make the investment with full confidence. But if he sees that there's something dodgy or unwise about it, then I value him enough to know that he's got a point. Uh, And don't get me wrong, we don't always agree on things financially and we've had numerous debates... (laughs) I call it debates about things, um, especially when we first got married. But we've reached a compromise for every debate so far, thank God. And one of the things that has really helped us as a family is the fact that Kevin budgets uh, money every month. And I personally hate all the accounting business. And luckily for me, he just loves it and he handles all of that. Um, So we basically have a mutual trust about money. I'm going to go as far as to say that provided that it's not an abusive marriage... Uh, you and your spouse should know each other's financial details like my pin is not a secret to kevin and his pin isn't a secret to mine having said that i can't remember his pin and he can't probably yeah i can't remember yours either yeah yeah um but you know we hardly have the need to access each other's accounts that's why but if we did need something we just ask each other and thanks to online banking you know (laughs) money transferring is easy but it really isn't a secret And if a time comes where he needs my details, I'm more than happy for him to use it. Because I trust him not to take the money and, you know, run away with it, hopefully. (laughs) And
1: I think he trusts me too. But, you know, who knows? Ha ha. (laughs) Anyway, now we've spent a lot of time in this episode talking about overspending. But overspending is not the only issue one could have with money. uh, Because the opposite is true too. Uh, Being miserly and not spending money on anything is a huge issue too. Uh, For example, when you have the finances to spend money and help someone out, and be, be generous, and yet you pretend like you can't help them, uh, that is something that's wrong. In Matthew uh, chapter 6, verses 19-21, to 21, Jesus reminds us that, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And every time I think about the word miser, uh, I recall the story of Fagin from Oliver Twist, the children's story written by Charles Dickens. In this story, Bill Sykes is often viewed as the main villain of the story. However, in the background is Fagin, a miserly criminal mastermind who runs an enterprise which uses children as thieves and pickpockets, which often results in the children being caught and leaving in an exposed position, like what happens to Oliver Twist, and leaves the mastermind Fagin completely free of any consequence. And the main motivation that drives Fagin to do all of this is his greed for money, and two, his desire to keep all the money for himself. Christian, I implore to you that this should not be the same for us. We are called to live in between the two extremes we have spoken about the extreme of being overspenders and slaves to the lender, and the other extreme of being miserly and storing treasures for ourselves. And I'd like now to bring your attention to someone that has guided Crystal and I through his ministry to help us become more deliberate and careful with our money, and really acted as a guide for us on how to use the money that God has given to us as stewards. And this person's name is Dave Ramsey. You can find him on YouTube, and he offers a wealth of advice on how to well mainly get out of debt and his teaching really helped us get out of all of our debt apart from our mortgage and you know student tax which we've already spoken about Uh, but these are things that we are currently working on I will leave a link to his YouTube channel in the show notes and he is a Christian, he is American so uh, bear that in mind when you're listening to it and he has more of a no-nonsense approach and I think a lot of you will benefit from listening to what he has to say
0: yeah, you know, when you're a young person, it's always all about the hustle nowadays, you know, hustle, hustle and nonstop, overworking. So all of those things are detrimental to our lives. And another thing is a new trend is making passive income. It's a big thing nowadays amongst young people. Crypto,
1: crypto. <laughs> well,
0: I don't I don't know these words, but <laughs> we often hear of horror stories where young people have invested a huge sum of money into things they don't really understand. um, And they've just lost that money. So we're not against passive income. I don't don't really know. (laughs) We're not saying that... It's wrong to do it. It's wrong to do it or you should never pursue it at all. But we are saying don't be all about the hustle. That is not the be all and end all. You know, in this culture where that is sort of seen as if you are a big hustler, if you're working 24-7, you are seen as like a great guy but there's more to life than that you're going to miss out on a lot of life if that's the main pursuit and the main goal so yeah we just wanted to sort of wrap this up by saying that money is a gift that god has given us to use and to enjoy and to give and to spend with each other but it's not everything it's not the core of our lives and the main thing we want to say here is that we should be seeking after the giver and not the gifts but we've talked about this already
1: yeah, and linking back to the point that you made before about, you know, working till you die. Even in the Bible, God on the seventh day rested. Now, he didn't rest because he was tired, but he was setting an example for us that we need to rest too. We need to enjoy our life too, and it's and it's good to do that. And on that note, folks, I hope you found this episode useful. And don't forget to like, share, subscribe to our YouTube Uh, Share this episode, follow us on Spotify, you know the drill. And please rate us on Apple Podcasts, it will really help us with our uh, visibility. And we hope you've been watered to water.